Well, as you know, during the month of May, we are going to try and tackle the issue of fear and anxiety and worry. Over the next five weeks, beginning today, we're going to wrestle with these particular questions. Number one, who's in control? Number two, what is fear? Number three, what must I believe? Number four, how do I pray? And number five, how should I think? Each of these questions are really important, and they all relate to this matter of anxiety and fear. Sometimes when I start a sermon series, I go through a little bit of an explanation as to why we're studying this, almost like I need to convince you that this issue is worth talking about. But I'm pretty sure I don't need to convince you that talking about fear and anxiety in the midst of this COVID season is somehow necessary. Certainly it is. It's, it's part of the fabric of everything we're experiencing during this day, isn't it? It, it sort of hangs in the air we breathe. On a personal level, Anxiety is an issue that I have to think through. I gotta work through it all the time. To be candid, I'm the kind of person who likes to stay informed. That might not be a surprise to many of you. I'm a bit of a news junkie. I'm relentlessly curious and I like to learn. But I found myself at times needing to take a break from all of the content that I'm consuming because what I'm reading or what I'm watching begins to overwhelm me. I just can't handle it at all. But then just when I do that, Another kind of anxiety sets in because as soon as I stop reading, I stop listening, I stop watching, I have to battle the fear of what am I missing? And so it almost feels as if I can't win. If I listen, I have to battle anxiety. If I don't listen, I battle anxiety. Then I hear from people who act as if they're not worried. And I wonder about that. How can you not be worried about this? And frankly, I worry that, the, that they don't worry. <laughs> and I wonder, how is that? So I become anxious that I'm too anxious and I'm anxious that you're not anxious enough. So no matter, no matter where I turn, it's almost as though anxiety and fear are waiting right around the corner for me. They're right there and they show up in surprising ways. Even though I know anxiety exists within my soul and even though I know anxiety is within our culture, it still surprises me and in some cases even scares me when suddenly it appears. You can think of it like this cardboard cutout of Mrs. Doubtfire. You might wonder, why do I have a cutout of Mrs. Doubtfire? Well, in my basement is a little recording studio that we use from time to time, and so I have this cutout so that I can focus the camera, get the focus right so that it's clear. Well, our family has had some fun with this Mrs. Doubtfire cardboard cutout because we keep putting it in spots that are scaring each other. For instance, the other night, I put it inside Savannah's bathroom in her shower, and I pulled the curtain just back enough so it couldn't be seen, and then I was in my bedroom doing something, uh, laying on the ground, playing with the dog, and I said, hey, Savannah, by the way, I've run out of hair conditioner. Can, can I borrow yours? Now, that should have been the first clue that something was up, but she didn't pay any attention. She's like, sure, Dad, I'll get you some hair conditioner. And then she went to her bathroom, and I heard her pull back the curtain of her uh, shower and a blood-curdling scream came from her bathroom and we all laughed and the funny thing is is we keep moving Mrs. Doubtfire around we know that she's around the corner we know that she's there but the fact that she keeps showing up in awkward moments and in surprising ways is still scary and when it comes to anxiety in our world it isn't funny it's really hard 
Sometimes we don't even know why we're anxious. Do you ever have this? Where you wake up in the morning, I have this, and I feel anxious and I don't know what I'm anxious about. So I begin to think of things that I should be worrying about and if I can't think of them, I'm, I'm worried that I'm missing something that I should be worried about. And it just feels like this vicious cycle. Sometimes worry can be debilitating. I'm sure some of you know exactly what that's like. That worry and fear just aren't around the corner. They're the clothes that you wear every day. And for some of you, for good reason. Maybe something traumatic happened in your past. You find yourself wanting to be sure that some bad thing doesn't happen to you again. You're self-protective and maybe even wisely self-protective. Next week, we'll talk about the fact that there's good fear and good worry. Others of us, though, have a disposition towards fear and anxiety, maybe a family background or a personality that's sort of geared this way, even a, a physical makeup, if you will, maybe even body chemistry that sort of inclines you towards more fear and anxiety. So it's not just a struggle for you, you actually have to fight not believing it's your identity. Instead of struggling with worry, some of you may view yourself as, no, that's who I am, I am a worrier. And I hope that this series, no matter where God finds you, is going to be really, really helpful to you. We're walking through this season because worry and fear and anxiety are flooding our minds and hearts. And COVID-19 created more anxiety, but that anxiety was always there. It just made it more intense. So if you're not yet a Christian, I'm glad you've tuned in. I hope you'll stay with us for the entire series that we're gonna be walking through in this season because I hope that you'll see that Christians aren't perfect people. We battle particular sin issues even after we've come to faith in Christ and yet the Bible is very helpful in speaking into this very issue. Today we're examining the issue of who's in control and the verse that we want to use today and then throughout the rest of the series as our anchor verse is Isaiah 41.10. Here it is. Again, fear not. I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The challenge is, let's memorize this verse together. Let's, let's let it so marinate in our hearts and our souls that it's just in there when we struggle with fear. Let's allow this verse, as Pastor Dale Shaw says, to get into our bones, to be a part of who we are. So who's in control? That's the first question we're asking. And who's in control relates to two things. It relates to circumstances and promises. The question is, where do we go intellectually? Where do we go spiritually? Where do we go emotionally when problematic circumstances arise? Something happens that would tempt us to worry, and so then, where do we go? What do we do? Well, Isaiah 41 has some circumstances that are connected to it, and in order to understand what's going on in the passage in terms of the solution, you have to understand the context and the problem. You need to know that the book of Isaiah was written with two particular moments in history in mind. The first was in the eighth century, 
when Isaiah is writing about what's happening in his lifetime, and the other is in the fifth century, or the sixth century, rather, as he looks towards the future prophetically. At the time when the book of Isaiah was written, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. Israel was in the north and Judah was in the south. The major superpower at the time was Assyria, and between Assyria and Israel was another nation called Syria. And Israel was worried that Syria was getting too strong, and so they made a pact with Assyria in order for safety. However, in 735 BC, Assyria conquered Syria. And even though Israel had made a pact with Assyria and they refused to put their trust in God, the northern kingdom, Israel, fell in 722 BC. And chapters 1 through 39 are written with that particular context in mind. And then when you fast forward to the second part of the book of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40, that section's written to Judah, who in 586 fell to Babylon. So political superpowers shifted from Assyria, then to Babylon. Babylon came in, and Judah, the southern kingdom, was defeated, and all the people were exiled to the foreign country of Babylon. So as we pick up our text, it's important to see the words that are written in the middle of a politically turbulent and culturally troubling time. So one of the challenges about this season that we're in right now is the way that it's affected the entire world. We are unfamiliar with circumstances that have this kind of scope. For most of us, anxiety issues have primarily in our lifetime been limited to our own personal experience, a health scare, a relationship conflict, wayward kids, work issues, financial challenges, and other things. And don't get me wrong, those are big things. But this moment that we're in is big like we've never experienced big before. And most of our lifetimes, we've never known a circumstance like this. And that, that makes it challenging. But what you need to know is that while we love the word unprecedented right now, it's actually not unprecedented if you take a longer view of history. And what happens is the Bible speaks into this sort of unprecedented moment. Isaiah 41 begins with a consideration. It's as if God is inviting people into a cosmic courtroom. He says, listen to me in silence. Imagine a court where it says, all rise, this court is in session. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, let them speak. Let us draw together near for judgment. The invitation is to inquire about what is going on. In verse two, it talks about God stirring up one from the east. It says, who stirred up the one from the east whom victory meets at every step? So there's someone from the east who is very victorious and the text says that God is the one who has stirred him up. Well, listen, this is the Persian ruler named Cyrus who eventually will come and defeat the nation of Babylon and according to Ezra chapter one, it will be the very leader Cyrus who commissions the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And verses two and three tell us that while Cyrus has all sorts of strength, this political leader has all sorts of strength, he's actually being sovereignly ordained. He's part of the 
cosmic chess pieces that God is moving. The text says, he gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not tread. And then the text says, verse four, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from beginning? And the answer, according to the text, is I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. What is the Bible saying here? The Bible is saying that even pagan leaders, even brutal leaders, even hard and painful circumstances are all part of what God is doing and controlling. Viruses are a part of God's overarching plan for the world. He uses bad things for his good ends. So this text goes right to the question of who's in control. And one of the things that you and I need to wrestle with when we think about anxiety is this primary issue of, I want control of my life. And what this text reminds us is that God is sovereign in ways that blow our minds. I know that creates all sorts of categories of questions and things of that sort, but what this text is trying to reassure us about is that God's got a plan. Now notice what happens next. With all of this sovereign control, we then see fear that emerges. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. And then notice what happens, verse six. Here now is what people do when they're afraid. And this is what we do. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The idea here is that people in the culture and in the community are saying to one another, hey, be hopeful, be hopeful, be encouraged. Come on, don't be down. When the fact of the matter is, they're placing their hope that the cheering of the crowds will somehow buoy the hearts of people. Look, else, look what else happened, what happens. In verse seven, the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Do you know what they're talking about here? They're talking about the construction of idols. So when people are afraid, they offer encouragement, often without substance, or what we do as humans is create things of our own making that we try to put our trust in. And that's what happens here in this text. In fact, isn't it interesting that they make an idol and they say they strengthen it with nails, so it's like they put extra footings on the idol so their idol won't topple over, and what people do is we run to these idols when we're anxious and we're fearful because we want something from them. You realize that's why we run to the idols of our hearts when we're afraid, don't you? It's because behind the idol is a promise. In the Old Testament, when people prayed to an idol, they knew that they made the idol. They knew that this idol was man-made, the attraction of the idol wasn't the idol itself, it was what the idol represented. I need help, I don't know what to do, so I'm gonna to pray to this idol, and you need to know that in that action, every response to worry is somehow connected to a promise of either the thing that we're worried about so we can fix, 
or the thing that we think will deliver us. Hope is connected to that very promise. Just think of the hopes within our own culture right now. What's the promise of a vaccine? The promise is that people will be inoculated from the virus. What's the promise of money? That my money will give me options to meet my needs. What's the promise of, let's say, substances like alcohol or drugs? They'll make me feel better. See, what you need to know is that part of the challenge with us, with worry and anxiety, is not a new problem. It's an old problem. And that is that at the end of the day, we fundamentally want control. And when we're worried about things that aren't within our control, we run to things that we think are going to give us control. But the problem is, is those things don't fully satisfy. A fearful event enters our lives, and what we do next very much indicates what promise we believe. So fear and promise are so connected with one another such that Worry and fear are actually gateway sin issues to other issues. You, usually, worry and fear don't remain by themselves. Let me give you an example. If you worry about money, it can lead you to be stingy, to hoard, or maybe to steal. If you worry about what people think of you, it can lead to the fear of man, to deception, maybe even lying. See, those issues are connected to what we not only believe, but what we're willing to do to get what we believe. So part of the way in which worry biblically is dealt with is to identify the promise that's implicit in the source of our worry and in the solution of our worry. Over the next couple of weeks, I hope that you'll begin to identify this and be able to realize, what promise am I believing? What promise am I believing? And be able to think about the, the promise battle. And for some of us, that step alone could really be liberating. Because there's some of us who just never think about why we're worrying. We just worry, we're filled with fear, and we never think about the promise that we're believing that's underneath. So this is what happens in terms of the circumstances. Now, let me give you the five promises that Isaiah offers that are the solution to these challenging circumstances. These, these five promises are anchored in God's very control. The, the text tells us that they're addressed to Israel, my servant, verse eight, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. You might say, wait a minute, this is written to Israel, how does this apply to me, here's how. Because God wrote these promises to his people. And in the New Testament, even though you're not an Israelite, if you're in Christ, you're part of God's family. And this promise is rooted in the very character of God and his love for his people. And so what we find here is a intergenerational, intertestamental, intercosmic promise that God gives to his people regarding who he is and who they are. So what are the five promises? When you begin to worry this week, here's five promises for you to remind yourself about. These are promises to fight the false promises 
of the idols that we think would be the solution to our worry. Promise number one is this, I am with you. This promise is this. Christian, you are never alone. You are never abandoned. You are never deserted. That God is always with us. This promise is listed as the reason that God's people are commanded not to fear. And verse 10 connects these two together. God promises his presence, and that is why Christians are called to not fear. Consider these words. I am with you. Hear them in this way. I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. Each one of those words are so pregnant with meaning and power that the sovereign God of the universe who orchestrates all events, everything that's happening is under his control. He walks with his people through their sorrows. I mean, part of our humanity is such that we can't stand isolation. That's why this time, the stay-at-home order stuff is so hard and challenging. That's why solitary confinement in a prison is one of the most difficult and harshest forms of punishment. Why? Because human beings hate to be alone. The sense of abandonment is just contrary to our human nature. Some of you, when you were a kid, remember you were lost? Maybe you were in a grocery store. I remember where I was in Meyer, and I couldn't find my parents. I mean, it's seared in my memory, and I thought they left me. Like that got burned in my heart because being alone is not what human beings want. How many of you know the sick feeling of not having people stand up for you and the sense of my friends or my family? They're not coming along next to me in this. And what the Bible tells us that in the midst of our worry, and even though we can't see God and we don't know what he's doing, we can bank our lives on the fact that he is with us. Listen, Satan is tempting some of you to believe that you have been abandoned by God, that he's forgotten about you. Your marriage is in too much trouble. The addiction is too strong. The temptation is too real. And I'm here to tell you, that is a lie from the enemy who doesn't want you to hear this promise. You are not alone. God is with you. Promise number one. Promise number two, he says, I am your God. So the solution for being dismayed is resting on the promise of who God is. This word dismayed, it means to look around you. It means that something happens and you begin to survey either what's coming at me or options or you're, you're trying to find a solution. So the, 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 the implication is you're, you're scurrying in the midst of your fear and anxiety to find something. You know what that's like. Come down in your living room and your roommate or your spouse or your kids are frantically searching around the room. They're moving cushions off of the couch and they're, they're looking everywhere and you say, what's wrong? And you're like, I can't find my Netflix password. 
Or maybe like you, I keep losing my car keys. I'm driving my car so infrequently that I put my keys in really bad places and then I don't know where my keys are and it's, or my wallet for that matter. And those things are incredibly frustrating and I'm searching and it's like I'm worried. What if I can't find this? What if I can't find, what if, it's, what if we lost it? It's one thing when it's car keys or a password. That's another thing when you're scrambling for a solution for a broken marriage or broken relationships, or you're looking at your employment situation, you're like, this doesn't look good. And your heart begins to spin, and you become to be dismayed. You start looking and researching and thinking, and and that becomes this, this relentless pursuit of more information and more information, because here's what we think. Here's what I think. I think if I learn this, I'll be able to self protect. If I understand this, I'll be able to adjust. And while that's true at one level, there becomes a promise baked into that pursuit that begins to eclipse an understanding of who God is. The promise is not only that he is with us, but the promise is that he is our God. When dismay takes over, we're looking for answers to questions like, why is this happening? What do I do about it? And when will it be over? And yet, the solution, according to Isaiah, is not the why question, or the what question, or the when question. As relevant and as important as those are, the ultimate answer is the who question. Who is my God? I can trust him. I can trust him. And so rather than pursuing the false promises of all these other things, instead I can rest and knowing who God is. So promise number one, I am with you. Promise number two, I am your God. Promise number three, here it is, I will strengthen you. The third promise here is that God provides strength to his children when they need his help. When fearful circumstances or events come our way, the Bible tells us that God gives us the courage. He gives us the determination that we need. Now, this word, strengthen, is connected to our text from, for next week, so you need to come back to learn more fully about this particular word, its meaning, its implication, and also next week, I'm gonna talk about the five faces of worry. So how does worry like, really show up in our lives? What does that look like? And then what's the difference between good fear and bad fear? Because there's some good fear. I mean, if, if I'm a dad and I'm not worried about little kids playing in the street, that's... It's not good, I should be worried about that. About that. There, there are things that you need to be worried about. In fact, you know, one of the roles of parents of, of, of young men and women that are moving into teenage world is to try and help them realize the things that they should be worried about. But what is sinful worry? We're gonna look at that next week. To be strengthened here is connected to the idea of God empowering you with resolve. It means that God gives you endurance. It means that God gives you an inner strength and support that you just know is not from you. You know, sometimes you can feel it. You you just feel an unusual level of supply of God's strength in your life. At other times, it feels like you're barely making it, but when you get through the trial and you look back, you're gonna say, I can't believe how much God helped me. But at the time, you didn't even realize how much he was doing to strengthen you. Sometimes the myopic sense of suffering and difficulties 
cause us to not realize the way in which God is strengthening and helping you. The Apostle Paul knew this reality. He said, at my first defense in 2 Timothy 4, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. And then he said this, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So this promise is simply that God is going to give you the strength that you need. For some of you, that's the lesson today. At the very end of the service, you just need to take some time and say, God, I believe that you can strengthen me. I feel so weak, I feel so out of sorts, but I know that you can help me, you can strengthen me. Five promises. I'll be with you, I'm your God, I will strengthen you. Number four, I will help you. The fourth promise provides assurance that God is going to work. He promises he will help you. It means that God is going to work out his plan, which is always for our good and always for his glory. Sometimes we can see it plain as day. A lot of times we don't have a clue how it's gonna work out. And yet the Bible tells us that God is helping us. He's orchestrating things, working them out on our behalf, we don't realize that the sort of the orbit of God's will is going to come back. Sometimes I've described this as the dark side of God's will. It's like an orbit around the moon. There's a moment as you're going around the moon where it's dark and it's cold, but you're still in a gravitational pull, and someday you're gonna come around and you're gonna see the bright light of everything that's going on. And God promises he's gonna help you. That's one of the reasons why the Bible records historical moments where God helped his people. It's to buoy your faith for you to realize if God helped them in that situation, then surely he can help me in mine. This is also where friends come in to speak to us and speak over us the helpful words of the Bible. God tells us he will help us. The fifth promise he says, I will uphold you, and not just I will uphold you, but I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Hmm. That refers to God's might and to God's power, and it takes us all the way back to that courtroom scene where God is inviting an inquisition into his power and his might, and what happens here is that God promises to hold his people up, how? By the essence of his righteousness. <laughs> if you're a Christian, you know exactly where I'm gonna go next. It is that at the foundation of every Christian's life, and hear me, Christian who's struggling with worry, at the foundation of your life is the love, the care, and the righteousness that Jesus himself purchased for you. That you are upheld by the righteous right hand of a God who loved you in the person and work of Jesus. And while you can't see all the ways that God is upholding you right now with your very eyes, you can rehearse the promises that at Calvary, God purchased the right to uphold you with righteousness, because God dealt with the most fearful thing ever in your life, which is to be in front of the judgment of God without the righteous covering of the blood of Christ. The Apostle Paul made this very, very clear in Romans 8 when he said this, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then it's almost as though if someone said to Paul, prove that doesn't feel like God's for me. What are you talking about? God's for me? Look at my life. 
And then Paul offers this, and this is for you who have to battle worry every single day. He said this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? In other words, if God loved us like this, surely he could walk with you and love you and help you and be your God and strengthen you through this circumstance that you're walking through now. For those of you who've trusted in Christ, Jesus becomes the greatest expression of God's control over all the events of human history. Jesus becomes the focal point of the promises that we have even in Isaiah 41, that Jesus is alive and he promised he would be with us. His last words to the disciples, go, baptize, disciple people, and I am with you always. Jesus is alive and with us. Jesus is God. Jesus strengthens us by the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises to help us, and Jesus upholds us by his own righteousness. So listen. Isaiah 41 isn't a silver bullet. Like you hear this message, and you're never gonna worry the rest of your life. That's not gonna happen. For many of us, worry is going to be a regular limping reality that we have to deal with and fight through. Some of you think that if I'm, I'm a worrier, if I, I tend towards anxiety, I'm a subpar Christian. Brother and sister, no way. Don't let the enemy convince you of that. Instead, with the hope of Isaiah 41 is, and the hope of what we find in Christ is this, that when we walk through things that are fundamentally scary, things that should create anxiety. In the midst of those moments, we can see the promises that are implicit in our fear and the things that we would run to. We can look at those things and say, I could do that. But instead, I'm gonna bake my life on five eternal promises rooted in the very character of God and displayed for me in the work of Jesus. That God is with me, that he is my God, that he will strengthen me, that he will help me, and he will uphold me by his righteous right hand. And if you're not yet a Christian, maybe this is the moment for you where suddenly you've realized life is too big, life is too scary, there's too many things in the world that are coming after you right now, and you need help from someone other than yourself. And maybe, 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 and I pray that it is, that this COVID season awakens your heart to run to Jesus, who not only can forgive you of your sins, but he can put a foundation under your life that you can trust in. Worry and fear are a battle. And the first step in winning that battle is answering the question, who's in control? It's not me. <laughs> That's why I'm worried. Who's in control? My Savior, my King, and my God. He's in control. And that's why the Bible says, fear not. Oh, Jesus, help us. Help us not to fear, be filled with anxiety and the kind of approach to life that is just so troubled and problematic at so many levels. Grant us faith to trust in you and to put our hope in you 
And Lord, for those whose hearts and disposition tend to bend more towards worry, we just encourage them today that, God, you know their struggles. Your arms are wide open to, to, to welcome them, to renew their trust in you even today. Lord, help us to help these brothers and sisters whose hearts are easily discouraged. Strengthen them, help them, remind them that you're their God today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.